Romans 11 and 12, and from Matthew 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, once again, we turn to you. You already have spoken to us multiple times as we have heard your word, as we have sung in some ways reflections on your word, and as we have just been hearing it right now. Lord, we need you. We need to hear you. And we thank you that you are a God who gives himself to us. And we pray for that, that as we are continuing to reflect on, on these verses that we were looking at again last week, um, that you would illuminate our hearts and draw us to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, for the course of Lent, we're looking especially at those two verses, Romans 12, 1 to 2, that Austin was reading in. And what we kind of began talking about last week was this, that as you come to understand Christianity, the more deeply you understand it, the more one particular response will make sense to you. The more fully we internalize the gospel of Jesus, the more we will find ourselves seeking to live in one particular way. And that, as we saw last week, was by giving ourselves to God. This is what Romans 12 says when it says, offer your bodies as a sacrifice. It's the idea of surrendering control and handing ourselves over to God, not, not because we are indebted to God, not because, or well, we are, but that's not the reason, and it's not because God somehow needs us. It's actually because we are being invited into a relationship with God, where He seeks to pour Himself up out towards us, and we receive His gift with joy, 
and in response, we turn ourselves towards him and gives ourselves to him. And he, to our delight, responds with joy as we give ourselves to him. This is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. This is communion with God. We offer ourselves to him. And I would suggest this idea raises a whole bunch of questions. And maybe as we were thinking about it last week, they started recurring to you. Uh, one is just very practical. What does that even look like? Well, I mean, okay, so if we're supposed to offer ourselves to God, well, what does that look like in normal life? And also, I, that sounds like the kind of thing that maybe like the Apostle Paul and Mother Teresa, you know, radical Christians can do, but is that something really, honestly, I can do? And even more honestly, when I think of who I am and the way that I fail, is that actually something that God would want? Would he want me? And these are questions that we will think about in the coming weeks. But this morning, I want to actually start even more basic than that. Before we even ask, how can I, and am I able to, it's probably worth just honestly asking, is this something that I want to do? Do I, do I really want to give myself, surrender control completely to God? I mean, it sounds kind of like we're being asked to do the ultimate trust fall. You know, like it used to be like in corporate retreats that someone would like stand on a table and be told to just fall backwards and trust that the people there are going to catch him. And in a sense, we are being told, it feels at least like this, that, except it's not just at a table. We're at the very top of a cliff and we don't actually see anyone behind us, but we're told just fall backwards and God will catch you. And we ask, is that something I want to do? And this question probably comes even more deeply for some of you who would say, you know, I feel like I've actually tried something like this, and it hasn't gone well. Some of you have, have spent, have gone through periods of time, and maybe it's even right now, where your entire life is defined by seeking simply to meet the needs of others. In a very real way, you are giving yourself you are offering your body on an altar, and it is not healthy. You feel this overwhelming resentment. You feel like you are losing yourself, just focusing on what other people want. It's, it's burning you out. And, and perhaps you recognize that, and you're trying to kind of move out of that kind of way of living. And so now you're hearing, offer yourself, and you're like, is this even what I want? Is this even healthy? And so this morning, I want to just have one simple idea that I'd, I'd like to kind of persuade you of that hopefully will help answer this question. Yes, if you give yourself completely to anything in this world, doesn't matter how good it is, if you give yourself completely to someone in a relationship, if you give yourself to something really good, like trying to end poverty or, or trying to plant a church, if you give yourself completely to anything in this world, you will lose yourself. But if you give yourself to God, it is a very different situation. If you give yourself to God in doing so for the very first time, you will actually find yourself. Jesus says something very like this. At one point when he's talking to his disciples, he says, whoever would like to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever is willing to lose his life for my sake will find it. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. There's a paradox here. When you are seeking to save your life, what are you doing? You are grabbing on to something. There is something you're holding tight onto and saying, this I must protect. And, and the reality is, whatever you grasp tightly onto, in the end, you will discover it is actually what owns you. And you will lose yourself to it. So perhaps you might say, I'm willing to trust God with a lot of things in my life. But one thing I really feel the need to control, because I just feel it, is, is to hold on to comfort and security. If that is what you're holding on to and saving, I will tell you that you might spend all of your energy and all of your time to make sure that your life feels safe and secure and comfortable, but you will always know deep down that you cannot possibly do that, and your life will be filled with anxiety. If you say, I will trust God with all sorts of things, but there's a dream that I must hold on to. Well, let me say that you will spend all of your energy and all of yourself on pursuing that dream, and whether or not you achieve it, it will leave you empty in the end. Or you might say, I'm willing to trust God with a lot of things, except my family, except my kids. I have to hold on to and protect them. And I will say, if that is what you do, then your children will determine your happiness or sadness, and they will feel the stress of that relationship carrying all of you, and the relationship itself will break. Whatever we try to save, if we seek to save our lives in the process, we will lose ourselves. But, Jesus says, if you lose your life for my sake. And those last words are really important. It's not just Jesus is saying, you need to sacrifice. It's not about sacrifice. It's about giving. If you're willing to lose your life for my sake, you will find it. Romans 12 actually says that does something very similar from a slightly different angle. Romans 12, we've already said, has this instruction in view of God's mercy to offer your body as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to him. And then it says, for this is your, and our translation says spiritual act of worship. It's a very hard word to translate. Spiritual is a fine translation, but it's, it's, it's not talking about spiritual as opposed to like physical. And that day, this word was used to distinguish what makes human beings different from animals. You know, animals react by instinct. Humans are able to think through and reflect. Animals don't know how to pray. Humans have the ability to have a relationship with God. It is that quality that distinguishes us from animals is that Paul is talking about here. And so what he is saying is, as you offer yourselves, as you offer your bodies to God, you will be worshiping in a way that is truly and distinctly human. A few weeks ago, we, we talked about how idolatry degrades and dehumanizes. If we give ourselves to, to love, if we give ourselves to money, if we give ourselves to progress, whatever we place our hope in, that will slowly make us become less and less what we were made to be. But, Romans 12 says, if you offer yourself to God, you do not ultimately lose yourself, you find yourself. You are made 
fully human for the first time as you worship the creator of the world. If you give yourself completely to anything in this world, no matter what it is, you will lose yourself. But if we give ourselves completely to God, in that very act, we find ourselves. Why? Why is that the case? Well, let me, this morning, offer you two reasons why this is true. There's far more, I suspect, that we could say. And that is that the God we worship is uniquely worthy of our worship, and the God that we worship is supremely kind. God is uniquely worthy. When we get to Romans 12, the therefore obviously points us back, and what we're supposed to understand is that for the previous 11 chapters, everything that Paul has been saying about God's work and who he is in his redemption is leading to this point. But I want to bring us back just a couple verses earlier. Because after he has talked about the gospel and all that it means, it's like Paul can't help but break out in song. Did, did you notice that where he says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Think of that idea of the depths, the depths. Like if, if, if the wisdom of God or if all that God has were an ocean, it would be deep. He says it's unsearchable, it's unfathomable. No matter how great your submarine, no matter how far down you go, you never get to the bottom of God's endless riches and wisdom and knowledge. He says, they're inscrutable. Like, they're, we, we do not even have the categories when we're trying to understand how God thinks of things or what he does. There is nothing we can do to fully understand it. God doesn't ever ask us for advice because he's looking for another opinion. He doesn't ever borrow a few bucks from us because he doesn't have enough. From him and through him and to him are all things. I wonder if, if we've ever fully internalized this. I don't think I have. I've thought about this before, that um, I, I think, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think I have oftentimes assumed that more often than not, I basically understand what God is doing in this world. Like more often than not, I feel like I can predict, oh, it makes sense that God would do this, or I understand why God would do that. That's kind of my assumption, of course. Occasionally, God will do something that causes me to scratch my head. Occasionally, God will do something that I don't get. Because he's a little smarter than I am. Which, of course, is absurd. I mean, yes, God has given us wisdom. He has shown us himself. But who he is, is infinitely beyond our imagination. He is the one who has made everything. He is the one who knows every atom and every star and is sustaining it by his word. He is the one who is at the source of all, who is the center of all things, who is worthy of all worship. He is unimaginably, inexpressibly great. And what that means is, is as he gives himself to us and we respond by giving ourselves to him, that is not an act that shrinks us. That is something that makes us and our lives bigger. There is, um, there is a show that our family uh, watched when it was on Good Place. Maybe some of you have seen it. It's this somewhat interesting kind of reflection on the afterlife. What's, what's heaven like? What's hell like? What, what, ex what, what connection is there between what we do on earth and what we'll expect in the afterlife? And the very last episode... Um, the, the main characters are now in 
this ver show's version of paradise. And for centuries, they're enjoying all of the good things of the world. They can kind of go to different moments in history, have the most beautiful sunsets, experience everything. But there's this one moment where the two main characters, Eleanor and Chidi, um, are, are in Paris. And, and they're with each other. And it's a beautiful moment in every way, except for them, it feels tired. It feels flat. They realize they have experienced all there is to experience, and they're ready to be done. And so they ultimately decide to end their existence. Honestly, it is a horrifying conclusion to, to the show. And yet, within the logic of the show, I think it makes sense. If all there is is romance and Paris and a few other things, then I suppose it makes sense that at some point we will have gotten to the bottom of it all and have nothing left. But I want to actually tell another story this one, a true story. Some of you um, probably have heard of the name Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians of church history. His, his work, Summa Theologiae, the sum of theology, is over 3,000 pages. There are over actually 1,000 commentaries that people have written on those 3,000 pages. He was an extraordinarily profound thinker, and I think it's fair to say, because so much of this was just about who God is, that no one in the last millennia has thought more deeply or written more extensively on who God is than Thomas. And yet there's this thing that happens to him when he's my age, 49. We're not quite sure what it is, but it seems like he had some kind of mystical experience, some kind of connection to God unlike anything he'd experienced before. And from that point onwards, he stopped writing. He left his summa unfinished. And when his scribe asked him why, he, he answered, Reginald, I cannot keep writing because all that I have written seems like straw to me. Think of that. Someone who had spent his entire life writing some of the most profound things possible about God, when he came to know God more deeply, realized there was nothing he could say that could possibly capture the greatness of who our God is. See, our God is endlessly interested. Unlike Paris or other things that are great, he is inexhaustibly glorious. Every year as we come to know God, we will not feel like we are closer to knowing him fully. We'll be even more deeply aware of all there is to know about him. Every year we will come to find deeper delight and deeper joy. Our minds and understandings will expand. Our hearts will grow bigger. We and our lives will grow bigger because our God and our God alone is the one who is worthy of our worship. From him, through him, to him are all things in him we find ourselves. And God is not just uniquely worthy of our worship, but he is supremely kind. The other passage that we read is probably familiar to many of us. We've heard the words, come to me all you who weary and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. And I wonder if we've recognized the context of this before. When Jesus is talking about this, he is talking specifically about relating to God. Did you notice? He, he says right before, no one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. When he is saying, I will give you rest, what he is saying is, I will bring you into communion with God. I will enable you to experience the rest that comes in knowing the true God. And did you notice how that happens? Jesus says, if you want to, to receive what I have for you, take my yoke upon you. Now, that would have been a familiar image in that day. In that day, most of the time, yokes were just like a simple pole that you would put over your shoulders, maybe having a bucket on both sides that would be trying to like, kind of distribute the weight more evenly to make it easier to carry. But it was also a really common metaphor that people would use to speak of coming under the rule of someone else. So a nation would sometimes be spoken of as coming under the yoke of a foreign king. Or Israelites would speak about being under the yoke of the law. And so people would understand when Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you, he is saying, entrust yourself to me. Give yourself to me. Allow me to be the one who rules your life. And you will find rest. So here we see something very similar to what we heard in Romans 12, right? Romans 12, offer yourselves to God. This is your truly human act of worship. You will become more fully when you do. Jesus says, Entrust yourself to me, let go of control, and take my yoke upon you, and in that moment, you will find rest. And what he's doing when he's speaking to that group of people, or even as he would be speaking to us, is he's making a contrast. Notice, come to me, all who are weary, and right now have a heavy burden upon you. He recognized that whoever we are, wherever we're coming from, we're all carrying something. There's some sort of burden that weighs us down, some sort of yoke that is not giving us rest. Perhaps, as Jesus is speaking to the crowd, some are tax collectors who have given themselves over to finding financial security, but they know in that moment as Jesus is speaking, as many of us do, that the cost of that is simply too high. Perhaps there are others in the crowd as Jesus who are speaking who have devoted themselves to trying to make sure that they've done everything they can to make sure that God has nothing against them to speak about. They have tried to make sure they've crossed every T and dotted every I so they don't have to worry about whether or not God is gracious like the older brother and the prodigal son. And now as they come and they feel the weight of their failure before Jesus, they are exhausted. And Jesus says, I have a better yoke because the yoke that I have to offer is kind. It's translated easy, but it could just as easily be translated kind. My yoke is kind. In other words, the instructions I give you will not destroy you. They will not empty you. They will not crush you. My leadership will restore you and make you more full. The yoke I have for you is kind, Jesus says, because I am kind. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus, our King, is gentle. He knows Every weakness, 
every inadequacy, every struggle. And he, he is not harsh when we fail. He is not impatient when we are slow to improve. He does just not crush us down with criticism. Instead, in kindness and patience, he, he speaks gently to us, strengthening us, building us up. He says, I am lowly in heart. He is not like the boss who is like so far removed that he's not willing to deign to even speak to you. He could be like that. He is the son of God, but he chooses not to. He chooses instead to become one of us, to know us personally. He calls us friends in our small victories. He rejoices in our grief. He grieves. He is kind. And if Jesus is kind, then that means our God is kind. Because in Jesus, we see the face of God. If to, to bring ourselves under God, to give him control, if, 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 if doing that with Jesus is an easy yoke, then that is also the case with God, that if we entrust ourselves to God, we will find a kind yoke, because we have a kind and gentle God. I think, I think we struggle to believe that. I think we have sometimes, although we will never put it this way explicitly, a vision of God that's more like a black hole. You know what a black hole is, right? It's this, this star that's collapsed upon itself so the gravitational pull is so great that it will take and take and leave nothing to go back out. In fact, it won't even allow light to leave it. That's why it's black. And sometimes I wonder if we think that's how God is, that he demands and he demands and he demands. And even if we give everything, it will not be enough. So at least what we should do is suffer because maybe that might make him a little bit happy. So yes, not only should we pray, but we should go sleeplessly so that we can pray even more, even if it hurts. Yes, not only should we seek to love others, but we should love until there is nothing left and we are an empty shell of ourselves. Yes, not only should we seek to serve the church, but we should burn ourselves out doing it because if we give it all to God in our super radical, maybe he will smile at us because he takes and takes and even still it's not enough. I hope you realize in the way that I'm putting this that that is a demonic vision of who God is. There's at least two huge problems with this. One is the simple fact that your God is the one who gave you your limits. Your God is the one who made you human and made you needing sleep. And when he did, when he made you finite, he said, this is good. In his love, he does not call you somehow to become other than what he made you to be. In his love, he does not call you somehow to, to lose your humanity in serving him. In his love, he takes delight in you and your limits. That's who our God is. But there's an even deeper issue. It's the obvious one. In no way at all is our God like a black hole. Because our God in no way at all, needs a thing. Our God has no interest at all in taking for himself anything from us. 
He is the God who is, who is not a black hole. He is an overflowing stream. His very being, because he is so abundant, he delights to give and to give and to give. That is who we are. He's like a river filled with life that is inexhaustible. When he invites us to give ourselves to him, it's not because he wants to take. It's because he wants to give us ourselves back, except a version of ourselves that is now filled with him. Because he is a God who is an overflowing river. Yes, if you're thinking about this right now, yes, there are times in this life when we're following Jesus where it will be hard. We know that because this world is broken. It is not how it's supposed to be. This world is a world that has rejected Jesus himself. And so if we identify with him and say he is our king, we can expect the world to treat us similarly. But even here, in those moments that are hard, we will experience the kindness of God. Because whatever we endure, we know that Jesus has gone before us and dealt with the worst of it so that we ultimately will know that we have a future that is glorious before us. And more than that, as we are brought into the worst things, we have God's promise that in those very moments, we will most find God's presence to us. In those moments, we will most realize that Jesus is praying for us, that Jesus is with us, that his spirit is speaking to us, bringing us through the worst moments because he loves us, because our God is kind. If you give yourself completely to anything in this world, you will lose yourself. But if you give yourself completely to God, the God who is uniquely, endlessly glorious, the God who is gentle, who is kind, you will find yourself, when Romans 12 is calling to offer ourselves to God, he is not asking us to, to lose something in the end. He is inviting us to gain. Let me close with one more story that Jesus says. Jesus speaks about this man who someday was just like walking through a field and kind of around some grass, he noticed something kind of like poking out. And so he, he was interested. He pulled, it, pulled the dirt and, and he saw a container. As he opens the container, he sees treasure unlike anything he has ever known, riches beyond anything he's ever experienced. And in that moment, he knows exactly what to do. He, he buries it again, and he goes to the marketplace, and he starts selling. He sells everything, his, his land, his home, his camels, all of his clothing, except what he's wearing. And people are like, this guy is going crazy. What is this going out of business sale? Everything must go. And when he finally sells everything he has, he takes all of his proceeds, and he goes and he buys the field, knowing that in that moment, he has become wealthier than he ever was. Now, how do you think that man was feeling when he was going through this process, when he was selling? Perhaps there was some element of sadness because he was saying goodbye to some things that once mattered to him. But Jesus says he did this filled with joy. Why? Because he knew that whatever appeared to be sacrificed in the moment was nothing compared to the gain that he was about to enjoy. Look, you, you can seek to hold on to control of your life. You have that choice. 
You can seek to try to, to protect comfort or security or whatever it is that you feel like you need to hold on to. Again, that is your choice, but you need to understand that that choice is one that will lead you into loss. And Scripture says there is another way that you can offer yourself to the one who knows you and loves you and is supremely worthy of your worship. You can give yourself in such a way that as you do, you become yourself. You can lose yourself in such a way that in the end, you find. You can do what might look like sacrifice in the moment, but in the reality, because it is with God, is extraordinary gain. Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God. This is your truly human act of worship. 